so a leader came to me and said, can you be really careful what you say tomorrow because the bishop's going to be there. And then knowing I say at least one or two completely stupid things in each room. <laughs> so, okay, the next day I'm standing in the cathedral. I've got a suit and a tie. Anyway, I was really doing my best. And guess what? In front of these people, a pigeon flies over me, drops its load on the sleeve of this suit. And so I said, uh, you know, praise the Lord, the elephants don't yes. fly. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. I'm really excited this week. Well, each week we have someone from very different sort of walks of life just telling ins- inspiring, stirring stories of, of triumphant faith over the long haul. Uh, there's so much bad news out there, and we want to c- counteract it with, with beautiful faith-building stuff. And I have zero doubt that you're going to be inspired this week because I count it a real privilege and honor to have with us George Verber. George was the founder and former international director of Operation Mobilization, which is a ministry of evangelism, discipleship training, and church planting. He did that for 40 years before, before handing on the leadership, international, international leadership of that in 2003. He's the author of loads of books. Uh, I was, George, you won't even know this, but I was on your team when you did a, an Oxford University OIQ event, probably in about 2003. We were at Easter people together in Clan Dudno. Uh, we've bumped each other on a number of occasions. I've sort of been speaking probably at the sort of D-list event when you were the A-list event. But um, <laughs> anyway, George, big welcome to you. It's, it's wonderful. It's, you're someone I aspire to uh, hugely, and you're a senior statesman in World Mission. It's a real joy to have you with us. Well, it's a privilege, and it's way overdue for you and I to actually sit down over a coffee or something and have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've looked at the list of the books you've written, because I've written a few books on radical discipleship, and yeah. your, your books have sort of similar titles of No Turning Back or Out of the Comfort Zone, Come, Live, Die. So, in fact, actually, last week I was preaching in Manchester, and this is just last week, someone came up to me and said, you're like a young George Verwer. And I said, well, I'll take that. That's high praise. I'll take that. So, anyway, George, I feel like I'm a junior kid spirit to you and thanks for modeling things so well listen let's just go for it i mean i'd, I'd love to hear more about your background as i was sort of doing some research a, a name called dorothea clapp came up can you tell us about her yeah she lived uh, near my high school i was not a christian i was not you know nominal a christian as just the way the culture was in those days her mm-hmm. son was uh, a senior you know last year of high school when i came as a freshman and his life and behavior impacted me, especially in the locker room. And the two of them together started praying for me and sent me this gospel of John that uh, started to change the course of my life. And But they, they not only prayed, she not only prayed that God would save me, she prayed that God would send me mm-hmm. as a missionary. She was one of these really strong missionary mobilizers, even though she was an ordinary housewife. So really her prayers... And the prayers of her son, who I'm still in touch with, became a wonderful doctor, changed my uh, life. But the final blow came at a Billy Graham, one night anniversary of Jack Wurtston's Word of Life ministry mm-hmm. in Madison Square Garden when Billy Graham preached the gospel and gave an invitation, which I'd never seen, to repent and believe on Jesus and be born from above. So I walked forward in Madison Square Garden and 20,000 people and... Wow. God did the rest. It's been a more or less reality every day ever since, for which I'm extremely uh, thankful now in my senior years. So what year was that? It was March 3rd, 1955. Wow. And so, save me the maths, how how old are you now? Yeah, I'll be 84 actually on July 3rd, so I'm 
I'm way down the railway track. Brilliant. And still going strong. So you are officially then uh, our oldest. We had a Virgo, Terry Virgo, on a few weeks ago. I'm sure you know him. And I think he's, yeah, he's, sure. he's two years your junior. And likewise, still going beautifully strong in ministry. I love that. So did you, I mean, were you just naturally wired? It was it, You were going to be all in for whatever you did in life? Well, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed my childhood. So that, you know, I didn't feel I needed anything much except girlfriends and money. I was in business when I was only 14. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing how God changed everything. But I think when I was saved that night, I he also sent me because I started sharing my faith and that's never stopped hardly a day for these uh, <laughs> what, 67 years. And so my first mission field was my hometown, my high school. Mm -hmm. And I saw many, many professions of faith in my high schools. We started a little prayer group. I was only 17. And then by 19, God had me on the way to Mexico. It's not time to give all that history, but that led to the birth of OM, though the real birth of OM took place in Europe after I was arrested in Ukraine by the Soviets under the uh, Soviet era, it was around 61. Mm -hmm. Because before that, our vision was just closed countries where other people weren't working. Mm -hmm. I esteemed other mission societies. We don't need to go where others are going, but Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, especially Turkey, and the communist countries, that was our vision. I lived in Spain under Franco at that time. And um, after being arrested by the Soviets and th eventually thrown out, originally thought I was a spy and confiscated everything we had, all the literature, little printing press. But I went for a day of prayer. That's when God gave the name Operation Mobilization and the vision for Britain mm -hmm. and to mobilize. I knew there was a lot of churches here. And um, to see Germans and French and Dutch and Swedes and people who had been killing each other, Italians, to see a mobilization, especially of youth, to reach everybody in Europe and then hopefully the dream to spill over into Turkey and the communist places where, of course, Europeans could drive. Mm. Whereas to me, Americans, they were a long ways away and uh, had to fly or come by boat. I actually came across by ship. So anyway, that's a, a little history of how this thing exploded. That first summer, there were 200. We're celebrating that 60th anniversary of that on June 8th. You're welcome to come to Emanuel Center. Mm -hmm. And then the next summer, there were 2,000. And since then, about 25,000 Brits have mobilized, trained, and served with OM, but about 200,000 globally. So I think the Lord heard that lady's prayers. Yeah, seriously. Well, God bless her and her. Uh, son, your your classmate, and uh, just it's encouraging, isn't it, that we can all be part of other people's journeys? And the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective, that's for sure. Um, I I read that you know with, within a year of your conversion at school, two hundred of your classmates had become Christians. Is that right? Well, they profess faith. Um, about one hundred and twenty in one of my meetings uh, when I came back during college break, and then I think that statistic comes from the result that we were involved in, the Billy Graham Crusade, which is a couple of years after my conversion, a full-scale New York City Crusade, 57. And so I think um, that further number came from that uh, Billy Graham Crusade. So from the get-go, you just had this 
fire in your bones that you had to share your faith? Was it, was it just, did you just splurge on people? Did you have a, a methodology or how, how, how did it go? I think the first year after my conversion, I was uh, very much a baby Christian. I would, I had been elected president of the student government, a thousand students. Mm -hmm. So I was incredibly busy in just normal life. You know, my final year at high school, I sometimes found studies difficult learning Spanish. And so I think, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as spectacular as some people might paint it because that bigger meeting was when I came back in my first uh, semester at university, but I was constantly sharing. And I recontacted a woman lately who must be the first one to accept Christ when I came back to this very liberal sort of social church that I got linked with. And she apparently is one of the first that came to Jesus there in that, in my, I was president of the youth fellowship. So it was encouraging to reconnect with her I launched a read the nonstop read the Bible, which I don't think had ever been done at that time. But it, you know, twenty four hours get through the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. So later, a photo came of that gal and myself at that Bible reading, which which it hit is so unusual. It hit the newspapers. Students read through uh, the whole Bible. Yeah. So I was certainly always active. <laughs> and then you ended up uh, via Merrillville College at Moody Bible Institute. I, I nearly, I dated, nearly married a girl from Moody Bible Institute, but uh, I didn't. But you did, didn't you? you that's where you met Drina. How, how, yeah. how did that happen? Well, I went to Merrillville College first, which is very important because that was my second year in Jesus, and I was really on fire by then. I'd been in the Word, memorized the Word, read books. So when I hit Maribel College, I was immediately ministering in the streets, in the jails, and even got me into prisons. But I was still very young. And godly people at Maribel, there weren't many there, mm -hmm. um, influenced me, especially a brother, Dale Roton, who's um, the second one I ever challenged to go with me to Mexico. And I think he reluctantly agreed. We've, uh, we've been linked as friends all these years. He eventually became a pioneer of our work in India, uh, in Turkey, then pioneer of the work in the communist world. And then he became director of the ship ministry. So we're the exact same age, but he's like one year older in Christ. And so in some ways was my mentor. And he shifted to Wheaton College. He was a little more intellectual type. And I shifted to Moody because mainly I wanted to evangelize Chicago. Mm -hmm. And... Um, get to the mission field as soon as possible. It didn't look like we would be together because he was going to join Wycliffe. And one of the historic moments in our history is when I went to Wheaton College and challenged him to take Turkey, the whole nation, instead, wow. of, uh, instead of Wycliffe. I didn't think he'd accept that. And it was a great day in my life when Dale said, look, I'm going to take up the Turkey challenge, which was the, sort of the number one nation in this whole thing that was involving in my mind to reach the more unreached nations of the world. But I met my wife at, at, uh, at Moody Bible Institute. You know, there's a film of my life story and that story of meeting my wife filmed right there on that part of the Bible Institute is probably the most interesting part of that film. Yeah, people love, love those stories, don't they? Go on, g g give us a, a brief summary. Well, I had a lot of trouble with girlfriends. You know, we didn't jump in bed in those days, but we'd kiss up a storm. And of course, I just was passionate about dancing, mm -hmm. which I continued after my conversion. And um, 
it got a little confusing. I'd lead a girl to Christ and then kiss her for a half hour in my personal, <laughs> personal follow-up program, which is not in the follow-up books. And uh, then I'd feel pretty bad about that. And um, so I went on a fast. I knew that, that, that I was addicted to romance right. and to girls rather than just like sex. Um, but it could, it could have led to that. And then I, I, I dabbled a bit in, in pornography, and I can't remember – in my first year as a Christian, whether I still had some struggle with that, but uh, that that could have also destroyed me. But anyway, I went on a fast, no more girls, no more kissing. That's when I went to Mexico. I went to Maryville College partly because I knew they had dancing every day. I never danced at Maryville College. I met Dale Roton instead, mm-hmm. who was anti-dancing. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that's when I learned Spanish, went to Mexico. Really, my life was transformed during those two years. Then I arrived at Moody. Of course, there were all, a lot of attractive girls at Moody, and I thought they're all born again. They're all safe. Try to kiss one, you'd probably get a King James to the head. <laughs> so I never I never kissed any girls at Moody, but I was infatuated with at least seven crying out for mercy because it has been two years. And I'd been dating consistently since 11 years of age. So uh, then I went to Moody, ran a Moody science film and the woman in charge of the film, it was just too much. I just looked at her, my romantic circuits blew. I, I moved in on the target, said something totally stupid to her. But I did manage to get her on sort of a first date, which was sort of an interrogation. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is such an amazing feeling. It must be a trick from the enemy. And so uh, I tried to scare her. I said, nothing going to happen between you and me. But, you know, if, if anything ever did, you need to know I'm going to be a missionary. And if and, and if you marry me, probably you'll end up being eaten by cannibals in Papua New Guinea. So he wasn't really in love with me at that point. But I mobilized my prayer partners. And God worked in her heart. And then she read in the school newspaper, this is so ridiculous, she read in the school newspaper, George Verwer, student back from Mexico, truly a man of God. She wanted to marry a man of God. So she read that in the school paper, and that opened her up to being more willing. Of course, we just celebrated 62 years, not only of marriage, but of God's grace and faithfulness to one another. Beautiful. 62 years. Well, my, my proposal to my wife included, uh, are you ready to be a young widow? Because it was, uh, uh, yeah, Burundi was the most dangerous country in the world way back then. And uh, yeah, we, I guess we, we, none of us really know what we're getting ourselves into, but we want to be as best prepared as possible. I mean, Drina presumably didn't really know what she's getting herself into, and it's been an unbelievable adventure in, in over six decades plus, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, she's still trying to figure it out, actually. <laughs> so Mexico was massively significant to you. Then, am I right, you went to Spain? Yeah, when we graduated, uh, we got married quickly after I graduated. She was only in night school and working as an employee, both and so uh, we went to Mexico for just about eight months, got that work more established, five more bookstores, all kinds of ministries, turned that over to others, especially a Mexican named Baldimar. We headed for Spain, um, you know, with the vision for Turkey. We had, Dale was going to join us a year later and head off to Turkey with others. And we saw, even though Spain was closed, we developed ways to get the gospel out through the post. Mm-hmm. And and other things is not time to mention, but incre- incredible answers to prayer for us as just young missionaries, and it, it encouraged us. But I was learning Russian in preparation for the next summer when I went into uh, Russian 
I've already mentioned about that. Mm. Are you a natural linguist? No, no, not at all. I managed eventually to learn Spanish the hard way. All right. So Russian yeah. would just be rudimentary stuff, was it? Yeah, I learned very elementary, and I learned how to type the Cyrillic alphabet because we were going to use the internal post system like we'd used in Spain. It was all a bit stupid, really, because the KGB was on us almost the moment we crossed the border, though they didn't catch they didn't catch us at the border, and we managed to smuggle in all this all this stuff. But I'm sure they had their eye on us. Mm. I one of my heroes is, is Brother Andrew, who is who is still alive, but I think he's he's fading, and he's written a few endorsements on my books. But he was known as God Smuggler. He wrote the book God Smuggler. I know. Uh, you've uh, sometimes referred yourself as God's bungler. Yeah, right. Uh, have you got any uh, just, good stories? I, I, just, I just did an interview in preparation for Brother Andrew's homegoing. Right. You're getting that prepared in advance. That's one of the last interviews I did at this very same same place. He's a very dear friend. We ministered together. Actually, once three of us were together, Corey, Tim Boom, Brother mm-hmm. Andrew, and myself, over there in the land of my father's birth, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And I visited him a couple times in in his senior years over in his his home. One of the blogs we did together really went pretty virtual around the globe. Mm. So give us some stories of your your bungling then, God's bungler. Well, mainly it goes back to me attempting to smuggle that literature and getting caught. Um, That's what that reference is, because he was very successful at smuggling, and I was uh, bungled it and got caught. And after that, I sent others, of course, that's an amazing story because we were involved in those nations almost ever since. The next summer, I sent Cambridge graduate who knew fluent Russian together with another Russian background guy from America. So we've been involved in those nations ever since. And eventually, OM was the biggest smugglers of Christian literature almost in all of history, all into the whole Eastern Bloc and, and not so much into Russia. There's whole books written about it. Mm. I've actually just been in Austria ministering had a tremendous time in three different cities, saw about 200 people stand when I gave a call to commitment and availability and, and pray that prayer from Isaiah 6, which I believe every believer should be able to pray. Here am I, send me. Yeah. So, um, you know, back in those days, if you were speaking at a conference and you were trying to stir people up, what, what sort of stories would you be telling of God at work? Oh, I had hundreds, hundreds of stories. And uh, the ones that would stir people are often... Uh, have some humor to it. Like I challenge people to be more positive, to be more optimistic. And then I share my latest book, Confessions of a Toxic Perfectionist, my most honest book. And I share about my negative streak and the crisis experience God gave me to when I was trying to become more positive in negative situations. I was in Pakistan and I was going to speak in the cathedral, and the bishop was going to be there. And OM Pakistan was just being born. India was going strong, but I held back on Pakistan. And so a leader came to me and said, can you be really careful what you say tomorrow? Because the bishop's going to be there. And then knowing I say at least one or two completely stupid things in each <laughs> So, you know, I said, okay, I'll cooperate. I think he irritated me, actually. Then another guy came to me and said, could you dress properly. I've hardly bought any clothing in my life. I just got it from others. A missionary barrel didn't always fit. So I wasn't known as world's best dresser. So they said, could you, you know, dress properly? So, okay. The next day I'm standing in the cathedral. I've got a suit and a tie. 
that was a big thing in the Pakistani church to mm-hmm. dress right in church. Anyway, I was really doing my best. And guess what? In front of these people, a pigeon flies over me, drops its load <laughs> on the sleeve of this uh, suit. And uh, so this is typical, isn't it? Typical, negative. This is what life's about. But God was doing a new work. And so I said, uh, you know, praise the Lord, the elephants don't fly. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, when I tell stories like that, it wakes up some who might be a little sleepy in the congregation. Yeah. And then, and then I you know, share the message of discipleship and missions. and But um, I'm very strong that missions should grow out of personal revival. And so I'm, my number one book really has been Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Uh-huh. For my 40th anniversary of, uh, 60th anniversary of ministering throughout all of Great Britain, I've just made a decision yesterday to distribute 5,000 copies with the help of other people of Calvary Road. Mm. I just put it on my blog, Facebook blog yesterday. I haven't seen the response yet. So if you want to help me give away a few copies of Calvary Road, let me know. Yeah, so well. God's still using that book. Yeah, we'll flag that up. We'll put that in the blurb if anyone wants to help. Um, I've, um, I, I, I'm on my motorbike once in Burundi. I, it was only about a 15-minute journey, but twice I got dumped on from on high. And I was yeah. like, I got to church. I was like, I must have a special anointing here today for you, twice. Yeah, like, well, be happy the elephants weren't flying around there. <laughs> uh, You'd still be in hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So, you know, you're part of this, this movement, you've got dreams and ideas coming out of you, you're setting up in new countries, there's massive growth. Um, it was super exciting, but I'm guessing, you know, it was tough as well that you, you had some sucker punches in the mix. Oh, well, I mean, the way I'm wired with the high goals and aims, commitment to excellency, and, you know, you're, you have disappointments and discouragements pretty well every day. Mm-hmm. When you get involved, I got immediately involved with a lot of people. And to get people to join a movement that is nothing is, is you know, we didn't have money. We didn't have backing from major leaders. We had a few, you know, fans and advocates. So uh, I got involved very quickly with a lot of people and when, saw people come to Christ. And then, you know, one month later, throw the whole thing over. And so there were always lots of disappointments and heartbreaks, but I was very committed to these nights of prayer. We, we had over, way over half a century of, of that prayer night right here in, in, in Bromley, where I ended up living. Mm-hmm. And that has been the backbone. Prayer, personal prayer, nights of prayer, prayer with individuals, 
And so we saw in the midst of the mess and the heartbreaks, and that's what my book, Messiology, is about, we saw many answers to prayer. I think the most exciting thing in my life, if I'm really honest, is when I got this idea in a converted pub in Bolton, Lancashire, we we had all these vehicles crisscrossing the world, going all the way to India. A brand new book coming out about that very soon. I want to send you a copy. It'll blow your circuits. Mm-hmm. These all these vehicles and what they face driving from London to Delhi. But it's when the Lord gave me the idea that we also needed a ship. And of course, people laughed. People wrote articles in the press about it, making fun of me. But um, we kept praying, and God gave us that first ship. We lived on it as a family. And uh, we just saw amazing things happening. And can you imagine uh, the day we lost that ship in the Beagle Channel, 1988? We should have scrapped it before then. It was so small, it was not big enough to handle what we were doing. But we thought of refurbishing it. And then the Lord, in his mercy, took it from us. It's still there in the Beagle Channel. So uh, we already had launched a second ship. Dulas was already on the move, an absolutely fantastic ship now a five-star hotel on an island in Indonesia, because instead of scrapping it after many, many decades of use, a, a guy bought it and converted it. He put it up on, pulled it up on land, and converted it into a luxury hotel. I've actually sent spend a night there in this luxury suite. I could hardly believe it was the same ship. So the whole ship thing was uh, huge in, in my life. And a great answer to prayer, 100,000 had been given the gospel through the ship, almost 50, I mean, 100 million, 100 million. And 50 million had been up the gangway of the four ships. And Lagos Hope right now is in uh, Liberia. And one of the reasons, one of the 10 reasons I still take so many meetings is we need recruits. And it's, it's one of the greatest experiences a young person can ever have to spend a year on God's battleship. But, uh, we are lacking a few people right now. And if anybody is interested, I'd love to even have a personal uh, email from you and I can put you in contact with the right people. And also you can get a thousand pounds scholarship from me for your for going to the ship because you have to raise your own support. So we just celebrated 50 years of that uh, amazing ministry. Wow. And uh, so what, what did the ship do for people that weren't having any idea? The ship evangelizes. You know, the primary thing is evangelism, discipleship training. We have pastors' conferences, youth conferences, film ministry. Fifteen different ministries are based on the ship. Humanitarian ministries. We have the coffee bar. The thing that attracts people the most is the largest floating book exhibit in the world. Thousands of books on display on that main deck. And people flock to it. Also, the huge income from book sales has helped pay for the fuel. Um, so financially, it has been very, very uh, successful. We may be getting a second ship, another ship very soon, because they're selling at a very low price right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't have the details. But we'd certainly appreciate prayer, because I know our our ship people are on the move trying to get another ship, a smaller ship to go in places where our bigger ship uh, can't go. But everybody on the ship also is in discipleship training. The nights of prayer, the Bible study, the constant exhortations, being thrown out of their comfort zone into churches where suddenly they have to give their testimony for the first time in their life. So all of this is all going on at at once. You can't believe it unless you see it. And then when you see it, you don't believe it. Mm -hmm. 
And is it like a mobile hospital as well? No, another group has a hospital ship. Okay. Um, Mercy Ship, which came out of YWAM 20 years ago. Right. They have a fantastic hospital ship, a totally different kind of ministry, but we keep in touch with them. And YWAM itself now has a number of smaller ships that I think do more discipleship, humanitarian work, evangelism. And we were together with them. Our ship was one of their smaller ships in the, in the Caribbean, actually during this uh, difficult lockdown, lockdown period. So is, is Operation Mobilization, is it still growing as a movement, would you say? Oh, yeah. Plus, whole sections of it have became transformed into church movements like India. So it came out of OM as a mission society. It's now an indigenous church movement, about 3,000 churches and 100 schools and dozens and dozens of uh, clinics and health centers. Just India alone is just huge and it's the story of how that got started from people traveling in the, these old trucks including me i lived in india for a number of years so uh, lawrence tong is our present director a chinese brother he was just here and he's doing a great job but of course covid hits a movement like om very hard we're known for mobilizing thousands of people yeah. short term long term so we've been hit very hard we i, I i'm not in any kind of leadership not even advisory but I praise the Lord for the way he handled it, the conferences through Zoom. Uh, of course, right now we're on the front lines of, of all those nations surrounding Ukraine. We've seen the greatest fundraising drive perhaps in the entire history of OM, even more than when we raised money for the ships, all for this Ukrainian uh, situation. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, OM is alive and well and, and growing. Um, not always in the same place. You know, we wouldn't have so many Norwegians now. We'd have more from Zambia. In fact, I think we have 200 Zambians. But some of the countries of Europe and different parts of the world, we definitely have reduced numbers. In other places, we have increased number. Missions has shifted more to the south. That's right. So all the Africans are on the move. We have about four or 500 full-time Africans. Latin Americans are on the move, though the financial restraints are, you know, are hitting it. Africans getting from, you know, Venezuela over to uh, Jordan, it's, you know, it cost a lot. Yeah. In fact, we had a couple of uh, your Zambian guys come up to us in Burundi to sort of pioneer something there as well a few years ago. So I've experienced that firsthand. Um, so would you say you're encouraged in general? Yeah. I mean, uh, I stay encouraged through the word, through singing hymns, through uh, being in touch with individuals. My life is mainly commitment to individuals. I've just finished now, already this morning, dictating 24 personal letters that will be signed to individuals in different parts of the world. So uh, I stepped out of leadership, but I found the last 19 years for me, for my temperament, and the freedom I have uh, better than the previous 19. No, I, don't, I don't begrudge any of it because God, you know, gold, God called me and gave me the gifting. He also gave me Peter Maiden as my associate, mm -hmm. uh, who's now in heaven. And, and Peter then became my successor. So I have a lot to uh, thank the Lord for also relatively good health after a few crises with my, uh, with my arteries. So hallelujah. Mm. So you had yeah. triple by, bypass heart yeah, surgery. Yeah, I, I uh, took a while to recover, but uh, since a lot of my work is on the phone and laptop, you know, I was doing it even from the hospital before I left. <laughs> but I, I certainly was 
it certainly hit me hard. And I was so thrilled as I began to uh, began to recover and started taking meetings again in August. I'm sure you you know Michael Green or knew him, and uh, I was reading his uh, a biography or collection of letters about him. And he in in his hospital bed in in Oxford, he was still leading people to the Lord. Were you one of those people in in bed as you're being operated on that you're sort of <laughs> telling the surgeon to come to Jesus? Uh, no, I don't think I told the surgeon. <laughs> Uh, Michael Green was a dear friend and one of the greatest stories is I was ministering connected with the ship to students in Bombay a long time ago in the early days of the ship ministry we spent a lot of time around the ports of India and even when I couldn't get in anymore officially as as a visa and this man, young man his dad wanted him to go to the meeting but not only didn't want to go to the meeting he was chucking Christianity but toward the end of the week, he needed money from his dad. He thought if he put his head in the meeting, you know, he'll more easily get the money from his dad. So he popped in this meeting when I was preaching. And he, I only found this out years later. And uh, the message didn't make too much of an impact. He remembered me kicking the microphone. But I pushed books, including Michael Green's book. And so just before he left, trying to get money from his dad, he picked up Michael Green's book evangelistic book but then as he walked out the church i had actually gone around to the front of the church and was just giving out tracts because there's such crowds everywhere and so i was giving out tracts and he saw this you know white preacher now in the streets among the poor giving out tracts this couldn't he couldn't get this out of his head so he read michael green's book till three in the morning was powerfully saved became a pastor, became a Bible school president, mm. and then became pastor. When I finally caught up with him, he was pastor of the biggest Christian church in Calcutta. Mm. And that's just one story yeah. of one person. And there are tens of thousands of stories. So, you know, if we're not encouraged, then, you know, we better see a Christian psychologist. Yeah. I know you've given out, you've given out or sold over a million of your own books, and then you'd multiply that, I guess, on tracts and stuff like that. I mean, that's a great story. Any any more sort of beautiful stories of how those books have been used? Yeah, I mean, my first book alone, I had twenty five thousand personal letters. Uh, that's a book called "Come Live Die: Hunger for Reality." Mm. So, um, you know, through that, I learned a lot about people, and um, I came into more balance in my ministry, more radical grace and realization that people sitting out there in the audience, they're often struggling with a lot more than we realize. And they need a lot more love and sympathy uh, if they're going to really become these radical disciples that we're we're dreaming about. And um, I think if we're honest, uh, on a human level, I'm disappointed that not more people experienced a conversion in our meetings that we've kept track of mm-hmm. uh, so that when we meet them, like one woman who came to Christ when I first came here to UK, that's 60 years ago she came to Christ in my meeting in Macclesfield. We're still in touch. So I wish there were more people like that, but the Lord doesn't always get us give us the chance to see you know, all the results and, and what's going on in there you know, in their lives. Yeah. One thing that um, profoundly discourages me is when I see people that I really looked up to 
stumbling spectacularly and being taken out in ministry. I'm sure you've seen where well, you've you've 40 years on me, so uh, you've seen loads of that. What is this your secret? How do you keep your feet on the ground? You know, how, how can we stop that happening or minimize the number of people that are spectacular? catastrophe is stumbling out. Yeah, I believe, you know, generally it's linked with faulty, faulty training as young Christians. I don't think our theological colleges are, are equipped to train people. They're, they're equipped to fill their heads and to help them in their faith. And I'm not anti, mm-hmm. but the message of the, if a man doesn't have the message of the crucified life, dealing with a self-life, what Paul says, I buffet my body, I bring it into subjection lest I preach to others, I become a reprobate. God gave me that when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And I became extreme, preaching against um, moral impurity and teaching that, you know, without a crucified life and daily dealing with the self-life, especially the male ego, the ugly, horrific male ego, which has hurt more women than could ever be counted, that if we don't, learn that as young Christians, we are going to get knocked out. From my first trip to Mexico, where a missionary just went off and had sex with a girl in the choir, until my first trip to India, where one of the first persons I met preaching the gospel was practicing homosexual and had his little boy with him. All these things that I saw, I believe a lot of it would be prevented. Maybe not all of it. Because in our own movement, all the men and women that were with me in the early days, it's hard to keep track when it gets bigger. Mm-hmm. We're not claiming perfection, but we have had very little of that kind of moral moral failure. Also because, as it emphasizes in Hessian's book, Calvary Road, we walk in the light. Yeah. We're accountable. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing's ever been hidden uh, you know, in my life to people I'm accountable to and, of course, to my wife. But my heart goes out to these situations. And uh, when people are quickly successful, that's a very dangerous road yeah. where, where failure can often be the back door to success. But I'm still stunned by, by some of the things that leaders get into because to me it's not just sin, it's just human stupidity yeah. because they just wipe, you wipe away their ministry just so quickly. I've had the chance to help restore and love some of those kind of people. Um, and I talk about it in my book, Messiology. Both my book, Messiology and Confessions of the Toxic Perfectionism, deal with all kinds of things that people don't talk about. But in the end, in the end, both books are positive. Both books are Christ-focused. And so I'm encouraged in distributing those books in my seniors. These are books that I typed up the whole manuscript myself, unlike No Turning Back, which was highly edited from tapes. And of course, I got my PA who corrected him and other people to help edit. And if anybody wants those books, I guess give them away free of charge. So that's George, uh, georgeverwer.com. People can check it out there, right? Yeah, or george.verwer at om.org is my direct uh, email address, george.verwer at om.org or they can go into the website that you mentioned, or you just Google my name and I'll be preaching on your telephone. <laughs> um, can you say more on accountability, please? Because that's something that I'm guessing a load of people listening won't really be engaged in. And, and it's to me, it's so critical in our discipleship. Yeah, I, I linked with those verses in John about uh, 
walking in the light, other verses about confessing our faults one to another, praying for one another. Uh, Again, I'm not saying it's easy because people sometimes in their first effort to really share their struggles, the person they shared with was a legalist who were hanging around on every bush uh, and and, uh, turned on them instead of helping them turned on them and got them removed from their their ministry. But I think um, when we have close fellowship with one another, and my closest one was this Dale Rotten I met at Maryville, Mm -hmm. who I shared my struggles with. But I talk about this again in my book. I really believe there's major blind spots on the part of of a large part of the body of Christ so that we've created a shame-based culture where people are afraid to, to share. We made it impossible for people to share. We're basically still in the grips of Romanism, going back to Constantine when he made Christianity official. Mm-hmm. And after that, people basically were forced to behave as Christians, even if they didn't know Jesus or experienced the new birth. So I think this is one of the reasons people have been so helped by my last two books as I, I t- tackle some of these things. But some people get very upset by it. So... Um... As we're sort of coming towards a close, what would be your, your DNA that you'd want to, you know, obviously you're bleeding Jesus and impart Jesus, but what would be your, the distinctives of, of what you'd want to impart to the movement or, or the next generation? Well, I've always been strong that there's no one, you know, magic bullet. Mm-hmm. I've always been this, you know, anti-super spirituality that, uh, you know, we just have an experience with Jesus and everything will be wonderful after that whatever we may call that experience. I believe we've got to be willing to take on the whole message of biblical discipleship in God's word. Love being number one, forgiveness, zeal. I mean, it's all there just even in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. So I believe on a daily basis, we've got to be obedient to what the Lord gives us from his word or through other people. And different people have different different struggles. But I don't think there's any one uh, sort of, as you put it, DNA factor that, that just makes it all happen. And in different periods of our life, we'll have different struggles. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of struggle with intellectual doubt my whole Christian life. And when you see people that are very close friends— uh, completely overthrew the Christian faith. And uh, we've had some very uh, interesting people this past two years that have over, their thing hasn't been moral failure. The thing has been intellectual, whatever, and they've overthrown the faith. But I believe that great faith is often in the, it is not in the absence of doubt, is as we continue to walk through and, and learn and, and look at the options. And uh, I just thank the Lord for, uh, for mercy and forgiveness. He knows everything about me. I've had failure with the lust of the eyes, mainly just looking at an attractive woman with without proper clothing. Even though I know I, the thought of even touching her just to me is horrific. But what about just the eyes and, and the buzz you can get from that? So if God hadn't given me grace to deal with that and accept myself when I failed, like that porno magazine I found in a tree in London once, that knocked me for a loop, then, you know, we, you and I wouldn't be having this interview. Mm. That's right. 
And God leads different people in different ways. He works in different people's lives through different books. Some have worked through God as mightily as your books. And they have no clue about my books, which is fine. You know, God just has a variety of ways of uh, working. And um, the greatest thing people can do in one way to encourage me is to read these final two books, in which I put really my whole life is into those two books and things that were never, some of it never told uh, before, especially also touching on the mistreatment of divorced people, the mistreatment of people with you know, gender struggles, the mistreatment of the disabled. I think the church, all of us, including me, need to be more honest about our mistakes and yet realize, you know, God was still working through that. We don't want to write all those people off, but we can grow, we can mature, and we can deal with the, these things that, that are such a stumbling block, especially to those who are outside of Christ. Amen. Well, listen, um, just mention those two books again. We'll put them in the blurb and then we'll call it a day. Well, my one book started with the title More Drops, but it's called Messiology, based on the George Ferrer proverb where two or three of the Lord's people are gathered together. Sooner or later, there'll be a mess. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds negative, but Messiology shows that's all that God has ever had to work with. Yeah. Is messy, messy, some bit big, some small. Yeah. So that book's called Messiology, and the later book just out. A year ago or more, Confessions of a Toxic Perfectionist, which is part of my own struggle and story and battle through legalism. And, uh, but it touches on a lot of uh, interesting subjects. So we, we uh, did 10 of those and CLC handle those here in the UK. Brilliant. But uh, you can also get them from me as a gift, especially in the 60th anniversary year. We want to invite you personally to be at our 60th anniversary OMUK event. Meet our director, Matthew Skirton. You need to interview him. He's probably the most outstanding director we've had in the UK since Peter Maiden. They were all good, mm -hmm. but Matthew, who pioneered our work in Moldova, one of OM's greatest breakthrough ministries, uh, now director in the UK, is, is, is to me, he's extra special. Uh, he'd be a great person for you great. to interview. Of course, he'll be at this event that we're inviting you to the evening of June 8th at the Emanuel Center in um, in Westminster. Great. Well, yeah, put me in touch. That would be a joy. Um, great. Well, listen, everybody, I hope you've been inspired. I've been inspired. Oh, my goodness. And and, and challenged. And I, I never thought I'd make the age of 30. Now I'm 49. George is 84. However long we've got. Well, I, I certainly I want to be keeping running the race flat out like George. And thank, thank you for modeling that to us, George. Listen, if you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you gave us a high quality review on Spotify or iTunes. Um, I'll put in the blurb uh, George's details for you to be in touch with him. If you want to be in touch with me, it's simongilbert.com or any of the other social media platforms. Listen, we'll see you next time with another great guest. In the meantime, have can, I give a, can I give a final word? Yeah, go for it. Redeem the time. To me, one of the greatest sins of the average evangelical fish is the failure to use, I mean, evangelical, <laughs> is the failure to use their time properly and and our time should be in the hands of Jesus. It should be used for serving people, loving people, and reaching them with the gospel. So that's my final word. Amen. We'll call it a day there. Thanks, George. Thank you. Toodaloo.